Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medella, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medella, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hi, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all our assumptions about culture, like that James Bond could ever be a woman. A female Bond could never be such a daft misogynist. And isn't that the key to 007's, what did lechery used to be called, charm? So do you all know a poet-philosopher figure named Maggie Nelson? I just got religion about her thanks to her appearance on a blockbuster podcast hosted by someone I'll call Klezra Ein. Nelson has a new book out called On Freedom, and holy mackerel, scales have fallen from my cultural eyes, trained in the 90s in deconstruction and irony, turned into dollar signs in the aughts by manic consumerism and Marc Jacobs, made blurry in the teens by parenthood, and now coming into focus to see where the chips have fallen. And Maggie Nelson is going to be part of my new vision, I can tell. One of Nelson's major principles of cultural analysis she gets from Eve Sedgwick, a literary critic who was also a mentor of mine. Sedgwick is known for writing queer theory, and no kidding, I once heard her lecture on, not safe for work, Henry James, and digital and whole hand penetration of the rectum. That's right, literary criticism about fisting. Those were the days. Anyway, the Sedgwick essay that Nelson has revived is from 1997, and it's called Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading, or You're So Paranoid, You Probably Think This Introduction Is About You. In general, I think a little cancel culture keeps us on our toes. I even wrote a defense of cancel culture for The Economist, only to have the piece canceled, so take me with a grain of salt. In any case, Sedgwick's article was written well before cancel culture was a glimmer in the eye of the radical right. But the essay seems to foretell this cancel culture development by contrasting what Sedgwick calls suspicious or paranoid reading of texts and events and voices in which you're waiting to pounce on someone's every moral or factual error. She contrasts this with reparative reading, where you listen to someone with a view to repairing cultural, cognitive, and emotional discontinuities, blindness, and pain. It's pretty heady stuff. And I'm just beginning to grasp it, but it syncs in some ways with Jonathan Haidt's more conservative idea of generosity in reading, a kind of position of of spiritual, intellectual opening to the possibilities of a text, a tweet, a speech, an utterance, even a person. So I hope you'll bring something like that generosity, reparative reading, together with suspicion, if that's your thing, to the ambiguous figure of Montel Williams today. Williams is best known for his TV series, The Montel Williams Show. It started in the mid-90s, and I highly recommend watching old episodes on YouTube when you get some time, if only for the music. Welcome, welcome, 
welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. You know, today's show will be a real eye-opener to those who never ask questions about products that they're supposed to be using that are supposed to be safe. I want you to take a look at this. These days, Montel hosts a bunch of shows, including a makeover show for military families and a podcast about weed. We'll get to that later. Often, today, Williams is a figure of nostalgia for people who remember with fondness his awesomely grab-bag daytime show, but he's also a punchline in pop culture on shows like John Oliver's, for doing ads for a payday lender, and for some of his old shows on dubious subjects. But I think we have to get past that sneering sage with Williams. There's a lot more to him, and he's a rigorous thinker and extremely stirring storyteller. For one, he was among the kids who were bused from their mostly black neighborhoods to desegregate all white schools after Brown versus the Board of Education. He's wrestled like so many of us, like me, with sexual assault, drug addiction, reckless behavior, and with the weird sternness about the misbehavior of others that comes from having to confront it and discipline it in yourself. Our conversation was full of surprising stories that were even sometimes a little sad, including stories of abuse, so please take care while listening. Montel Williams, welcome to This is Critical. Well, thank you so much for having me. Some listeners don't know your story, which is a remarkable story. I want to hear about, first, your uh, growing up and then your military service, because that's a, a little understood part of how Montel Williams was made. How, do, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I am a, uh, a child of the 50s. I was born in the 50s and uh, born into an area of Baltimore, Cherry Hill. We lived approximately about a block and a half away from the city dump. And I had two parents who were extremely hardworking parents. Who, um, and my mother worked multiple jobs. My father worked multiple jobs. I was the youngest of four. Um, originally started school in uh, at a elementary school in Cherry Hill. But then my parents, my father, who was one of his jobs, he was a carpenter. So he had saved up enough, you know, um, extra supplies and. Now, nails and boards and things that he literally and worked his tail off to buy a piece of property in a little suburb of Baltimore called Glen Burnie, where he went in and built us a family home. And we uh, moved to Glen Burnie. And, um, you know, we transferred from the inner city schools to back then, this is a small African American enclave that ended up being the you know, the resource for busing students to schools all over the area. And I got ended up being a product of busing in the 60s. You know, I, I had a father who was extremely, you know, uh, education was probably the most important thing in him to him in his life. Um, he ended up going to school for 17 years to get his bachelor's degree. Um, wow. But he did achieve his bachelor's degree. And, um, you know, on that journey for him, he held uh, three cabinet posts in the city of Baltimore. He was a commissioner of transportation, a commissioner of public works, and the uh, chief of the fire department in Baltimore. Uh, first, first black fire chief, do I have that right? Yep, of, of a major metropolitan city in Ocaria. Your parents were Catholic. You were an altar boy. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, we went to... we I, Very young growing up, I was an altar boy. Um all the way through mm, age 13, 13 when I stopped going to church. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but my parents, my mother would take us to church every single Sunday. Yes. Um, tell me about the priest. 
um, that was part of driving you out sure. of, of the church. I had a guy, you know, I literally, he mm-hmm. was, I, I know looking back at it now and thinking about it, I guess he was attempting to groom me because I used to have to take the sacrament and put it back in his little vestibule and close the doors, you know, and the Indian sacrament being the host and the wine, pour it back in the bottle and, you know, after mm-hmm. the mass was over. And I remember um, the one time, you know, it was really only one time where um, he came in while I was doing that and he literally came in and pressed up against me from behind in a way that made me, you know, immediate reaction was to shoot an elbow back, which I think alarmed him a little bit that I was even responding in that way. And um, I said, what are you doing? And I backed up and I closed it up and I closed the vestibule and I shot out of his, his little area. And I remember I went home and I said something to uh, first to my father, and then my father, because my my, you know, my father didn't go to church with us every Sunday because he was a shift worker also. But I remember going home and saying, you know, that dude was really weird, man. He came up behind me, and, you know, I, again, I'm saying this in a really 13-year-old's brain, uh, 12-year-old's brain that, that mm-hmm. hadn't processed this, but it was just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think it registered my father immediately so that the next conversation I had with my mother was, you don't have to go to church this Sunday. So clearly he was like, you know, you ain't got to go back. And I stopped that day and I never really went back to a Catholic mass. What an what an extraordinary gift of your parents that they believed you. Immediately, you know. Um, and they took action. Yeah. I want to ask about being bused to a suburban high school from um, Baltimore, the neighborhood in Baltimore where you grew up. You know, uh, I I can remember some of my earliest memories getting off that bus was to people who were outside of the doorway of the school holding signs and screaming and yelling and hollering and calling names, some of which I didn't even recognize as a child. Mm. Um, But wondered often, why, what did I do to make you so mad? which I also wonder today, because what did I do to you to make you so mad? You know, something like that encounter with a priest, and then, not long after, an encounter with, you know, a kind of incredibly virulent, almost violent or possibly violent racism when you're just trying to go to school. Those two things, you know, must have taken their toll on you. You know, it, they, they do. I mean, you know, the being in a place where you were clearly not wanted, and even some of the teachers in the school, the elementary school at that age, you're talking about, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, and having it being etched into you that we don't want you. You're not wanted. You're not part. You're not equal. I, I was very fortunate uh, when I was in school. I, you know, and let me go back to my parents and their my father's, you know, adamance over education. I mean, one of the things that he would do when we were little, I, I'll never forget this. I've, I remember this clearly in my entire life. Whenever he was home at dinner time, we would all sit and have dinner at the dinner table with him. I mean, it was period. All four kids showed up at the table, sat at the table. He was at the head. My mother was at the other end of the table. And, you know, before you actually put a first bite in your mouth and throughout the entire meal, you know, one of the requirements my father had for all of us was that, um, you know, the ones that were going to school at the time, uh, you had to come to the table having um, read and researched four words that you got the four words out of the Webster's Dictionary, 
because mm-hmm. he took great pride in being in buying us Webster's dictionaries and then buying us a set of you know the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm-hmm. But he um, <laughs> would require that you came to the dinner table with an assignment, and that was with four words that you could read, spell, and use in a sentence. And mm-hmm. though wow. I was the youngest at the time, you know my older siblings would feed me words. So I had to do it also. So he would go around the table and you would ask him if you didn't have your word. You know, back then, if you remember, you know, we looked at uh, parenting differently. You know, you were normally knocked out of your seat onto the floor to get back up to give the second word if you didn't mm-hmm. miss the first word. So, wow. you know, you, you didn't miss words. And so I was very blessed that I had an opportunity to come to, to go to school in the first grade and the second grade with a vocabulary of a sixth grader or seventh grader because my older sister would give me words. Hmm. So, you know, hmm. um, I, Do you remember any of the words? I, anywhere. I mean, you can think. We, I remember one of the, one of, um, anti-disestablishment. Antarian. Oh, yeah. Come on. That was one of the words. That was a requirement that everybody had to know in the, at the afternoon. You're so, kidding me. Oh, that no. is, it, that word keeps switching in on itself. It's so hard to keep yeah, up with yeah, that it's, word. It's a crazy word, but you had to know how to spell it. I can't even spell it today. But, um, no. you know, you had to spell it. And so I went to elementary school, first grade, second grade, literally just blistering through reading and spelling tests. And, you know, the teacher would put, you know, the typical cat hat, whatever, back all those words on a page, oh, yeah. hand out to me. I do that in two seconds, hand that in and start hitting somebody in the back of the head. So I was always disruptive, but I was also, you know, quite an artist back then. So, and this one teacher in particular recognized that that I had that skill and literally would send me into the hallway um, during class to work on the next coming holiday poster, holiday Hmm. sign, holiday this, that, and the other. So instead of throwing me down to the principal's office and beating me over the head, she was mm. sending me out in the hallway to work on something, knowing mm-hmm. that if I was occupied, I'd stay out of trouble. And, yeah. um, you know, that uh, that went a long way for me because that also, at the same time that I'm getting this message of not being wanted, I was also the kid mm. that was sewing together four bed sheets and painting a four bed sheet side turkey with Happy Thanksgiving on it. On wow. It. <laughs> in the second grade. And I'm getting the sense that, you know, that first day of school when you were bussed in, you stood out already. So there was no chance that you were going to just be able to blend into the background. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, did, I had an incident happen in the third grade, you know, because I, I was so proficient at English and, and with mm-hmm. language and skills. I used to write, they, they, they started something in my county, in Anne Arundel County back then, where there was a couple of different radio stations and what those radio stations would do is they would select, you would submit stories to them. Kids would submit stories to them and then they would pick a story and they'd read it over the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, I fortunately had a couple of mine selected uh, along the way and mm. got them read. So I was like walking around like I was a big, big, bad kid on campus. You know what I mean? Like, of course. Was, and they mm-hmm. would be short stories, one or two pages. And I remember I was in the third grade and I wrote a story and it was like, you know, I thought it was the best story I'd ever written in my life. I thought I was like literally getting ready to get a Nobel Prize. I wrote a mm. story about, you know, um, uh, it was coming up on Christmas and, you know, I only had about seven bucks and I wanted to go to the store and buy my family some presents for Christmas. So I went to mm-hmm. the store and I found, I got everybody a present. 
By the time I bought the presents, I looked down and I only had like, you know, 50 cents left. So I didn't have enough money to get the presents wrapped. And so I wanted, uh, I went down to the little area in the store and I asked the lady who ran the wrapping area. I said, look, if I clean up your floors, will you wrap my presents for me? And she said, of course. So I cleaned up her floors and she wrapped my presents all pretty with bows. And I took the presents home and I put them under the tree for Christmas. And then, you know, the family got up on Christmas morning and they opened up all their presents and yay! It was like a great story, right? So I Amazing. Thought, I thought yeah. that story was going to get, I mean, I'm telling you, I thought they were going to read it. The president was going to read that story, right? <laughs> and I remember I got that story back on my desk in the classroom, and there was a big red F on the uh, F on the top of my page, and it was circled with a big red. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, my life flashed before my eyes while I was sitting in that classroom. If I took that story home, that paper home to my father and he saw that F, I was getting ready to get killed. That's what I just thought myself. So I literally took that story home and I hid it between the mattress and box springs on my bed. Didn't say anything about it. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with this. I read that story over and over and over again. And she had circled not only that big red F on the top of the page, but she had looked down through the story, this teacher, and circled mm-hmm. one word in red throughout the page. And I'm okay. like, well, I didn't spell it. I'm looking at it. There's nothing wrong with that word. I'm looking at it. I'm trying yeah. to figure out what is wrong with this. So I took the paper back in because I wanted to ask the teacher, you know, I, I, I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're crazy. Maybe I'm wrong. But what was so wrong about that? And she took that mm-hmm. paper in her hand and she looked at it. And she said, you know what you did wrong. And I looked at her again. I'm looking at the mm-hmm. word. And she said, you know what you did wrong. And this is the reason why you people will never be anything in life. Because you only got one thing on your mind. She threw the paper at me, and I walked out, and I hid that paper again in my box, back between my box springs and mattress for the next five years of my life. And I remember when my mother would come and change the bed, I would pull the paper out, hide it in a shoe, put it back in there, hide it, because I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Until I got old enough to be able to use the dictionary to look at what was wrong. Now, I told you that I, well, I didn't say I misspelled, but I had misspelled one word in this paper. Okay. Okay. And she circled that one word. And for that one word, she gave me an F and looked a, a third grade child in the face and said, this is the reason why you people will never be anything in life because you only have one thing on your mind. So what word mm-hmm. did I misspell? I, I mean, I'm, I can't, uh, let's think. I misspelled the word wrapped. Oh. Right. Without the W. Correct. And it was so weird because by the time I got to the sixth set of the grade and could look it up and understand what the R-A-P-E-D meant mm-hmm. rather than the W-R-A-P-P-E-D, mm. I literally thought to myself, how dare you tell a child that doesn't even know what this means, that mm-hmm. this is why you will, you people will never be anything in life. And that's what literally made me really hone in on the idea that I alone own the definition of who I am. Hmm. And I will be the mm-hmm. only person who will define who I am. And that's what made me pursue all the things that I pursued when I got in high school. I played sports. I played football. Got lettered in JV football. I ended up being play, play, playing on the varsity team. I played basketball, lettered in basketball, got got to play on the varsity team. I walked away from that. I got into school politics. I, and I, I literally tried to define me 
without allowing anybody else to define me for the rest of my life. And that's who I've been. That's that's really been, you know, a core to who Montel Williams is. I'm kind of speechless about that story. Um, it's stunning and um, kind of terrifying. Um, I mean, I just, you know, by contrast, once I referred to in writing a REAM of paper, you know, 500 pages mm-hmm, of paper, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, and the teacher pulled me aside to say that had this other meaning and she couldn't really explain it to me, but she gave me an A on the paper, wow. you know? She, wow. And I didn't even, that you know, that right. was, I meant the word that I wrote, sure. not, you were unlike that. So, um, so just to tell, you know, that's how it happens when you're not black. Yeah, but you know, but then when you, when you look back and wonder, why I was who I was. I, you know, I not only was elected to class president, you know, twice, but I was a student on the Board of Education my senior year in high school. I was, uh, you know, from the, the ninth grade on. Again, I was kind of a strange kid. Um, you know, I played in a band mm-hmm. that would play in nightclubs on Friday night, and I couldn't even walk in the front door of the nightclub. I had to go in the back door, go on the stage, and get out during the breaks. Uh, Wait, are you, are you because you were a kid or because you're black? I was underage. But at the same time that I was playing in this band, hanging out with all these rockers and hanging out with a crowd that was dabbling in, you know, whatever was the thing of the day, drinking a little yep. bit, hiding under the bleachers, smoking a little pie, doing these kind of things. I was also on the Chesapeake Regional Association of Student Councils. I was on the Maryland Association of Student Councils. I was on our own school student council. I was uh, the president of the Thespian Society for my school. <laughs> I received the Martin Luther King Award for the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, for my high school, and that would have been a, a scholarship to college. Um, but I thought I was going to be a rock star. I literally thought I was going to be the biggest, you know, singer star in America. And yeah. um, at a flash, um, my band blew up uh, over one weekend because a couple of the guys in the band decided to, you know, roll a gas station. This is before 7-Eleven, so this is a gas station kind of a kiosk kind of a place. Mm-hmm. And they weren't they weren't criminals. They were just buttheads who mm-hmm. you know, wanted to steal some beer and not pay for it. So uh, they busted a, uh, they got busted for rolling this, this gas station and um, the band fell apart. Next thing you know, I had nothing. And um, no one to lean on. And so I had one cousin who I remember had gone in the military, but I also had a, a, a friend of my brother's who I had some respect for, who was older than me, who went in the Marine Corps and came home on some leave. But I remember him wearing that uniform and the dude looked so just, I mean, he looked like the epitome of leader. Yeah. And, you know, this is also near the end of the Vietnam War. But I just really felt in me that... You know, this was the the right thing to do. So mm-hmm. I went to my parents and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to listen to Marine Corps." And my father was like, "Marine Corps? Are you crazy?" And I was like, "No." And he said, "Yeah, my boyfriend and I went down and I enlisted in a um, uh, early enlistment program where um, I enlisted before I graduated from school and then went to boot camp after I graduated from school." Mm-hmm. But that's what started me on the path in uh, in service. Coming up after the break, how did the military birth? The Montel Williams Show. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Today, I'm talking with Montel Williams, host of The Montel Williams Show. Before being a daytime talk show host, Williams was a military man. He went to the Marines straight out of high school and was the first Black Marine to graduate from the Naval Academy. He specialized in cryptology and international security and worked with the NSA during the invasion of Grenada. Williams now hosts a show on Lifetime called Military Makeover, a home renovation show for military families. It's clear he's proud of his military service. What's less clear is how in the world a career in the Marines could lead to the Montel Williams show. Turns out the idea came from speaking events Williams would do at Navy recruitment drives. He'd go to schools around the country talking about how much the military taught him about leadership and staying away from what he calls negative youth trends. You know, say no to drugs, stay out of gangs, that sort of thing. He had a no-nonsense style that would carry over into his talk show. And... I wanted to see if I could, you know, impress upon guys to, to, you know, pay a little bit more attention to the fact that there is something called a future out there. Mm-hmm. And so I went and did a couple of presentations at a school. We had, this was not anything formal. Hmm. And literally it got such a rousing response that it made the newspapers in Kansas and it hmm. made um, all the, uh, all, next thing you know, I'm looking at my, there was room, this was before the internet, so I wasn't getting emails. Hmm. letters are coming in asking, would you please come and speak at my school? Hmm. So from January of 88 until June of 88, I probably spoke at hmm, about 30 schools across the country. Yeah, okay, um, so it's 30 schools in six months. Yeah. Uh, okay. And this I, is starting it, to explain, you know, how every uh, other people from the outside see overnight success. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, but from the inside, you know it. It's, it takes much longer than that. But still, it really... You spend 17 years in the military and then pretty much immediately, well, to the naked eye, get this syndicated daytime talk show. Well, how it happened is because at those 17 schools, every time I went to a school, I mean, the, the crazy things would happen. Kids would walk by the principal's mm. office and throw pot in the principal's office. And kids would swear off drugs. And mm. NBC Nightly News started following what I was doing. And you know, back at the time, you got to remember, this is 1988. Mm-hmm. There were only four talk shows on. There wasn't yeah. a plethora of talk. There was Oprah, Sally, Phil, and Geraldo. That was it. Regis and Kelly was only considered a morning show. Yep. They weren't considered a daytime talk show. Uh-huh. You had that guy, uh, the mouth, loudmouth, I can't remember his name, uh, Morton Downey Jr. had started a oh, show yes. where he was letting yes. people yell back. So there yeah. wasn't a lot of talk on TV. And I started orchestrating this thing where I would take three of kids out of the class, out of the school, put them on stage, and then I would play host between the kids in the audience, the kids on stage, asking them about what they were doing. These would be normally be the the popular screw ups in the school mm-hmm, that I put mm-hmm. on stage, and these kids would, you know, we'd orchestrate this talk show that people really enjoyed. And I decided what I was doing was really a service, and so I started my own nonprofit, which was called Reach the American Dream. 
mm-hmm. got out of the Navy and off active duty, went into reserves. Um, and from that point forward, I started speaking all over America. So, you know, I basically, from 1988 to 1991, I spoke in about 1,500 high schools across the country. Then I had, as sponsors, I had Pepsi, I had AT&T, ITT mm. technical schools. Um, Pepsi made a deal with Columbia TriStar to distribute the motion picture glory to every mm-hmm. school across the mm. country. This was in 1990, 89, yep. 90, as part of Black History Month. They had mm-hmm. reached out to Denzel to see if Denzel wanted to do a leader on it to introduce it. And he said mm-hmm. no. And they came to me and said, would you do it? And I said, yeah, of course I'll do it. Mm. So I ended up being, if you can find it, if you Google it, Montel Williams does Introduction to Glory for Black History Month. What you're about to see took place over 100 years ago during the Civil War. It was a conflict in which nearly 600,000 soldiers lost their lives. They mm-hmm. sent the VHS tape out to every school across the country. Mm-hmm. of the movie Glory. Hmm. And I was on the front of it. Got that it. videotape wound up on the desk of a gentleman by the name of Freddie Fields. This is the-, the analog version for kids of going viral. And then that ended up on, on this producer's desk. So I showed this to Freddie Fields. And he said, wow, you're really pretty good. Uh, you ever thought about wanting to do a TV show? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. This was Christmas Eve, 1990. By January of 1991... Mm-hmm. Freddie Fields and I partnered up with another person by the name of Herman Rush, and we ended up pitching a talk show for me to every one of the syndicators. By <laughs> April of 1991, I got an offer from Viacom to do my own talk show. By May 1st of 91, I was shooting practice shows. May 8th, shot my real show, went on the air, and never looked back. So you're telling me that it was... Uh pure talent and hard work that got you there it wasn't a, you didn't draw a lottery ticket yeah, uh, was, uh, <laughs> well, I got, yeah. and and fortunately this is something else that really made the show stick my show started in may of 1991 most mm-hmm. new shows didn't start until september so i went oh, on the air yeah. and got really compared to oprah phil sally and Geraldo. and you don't remember I won the Emmy for Best Talk Show Host. That mm-hmm. really was the Emmy that dethroned Oprah. And, you know, I ended up staying on air for 17 years. A lot of the shows weren't about shock and drama, though. They were about issues. Like this show about teaching kids how to make 911 calls. What you just heard was an actual 911 call made from the Las Cruces Bowling Alley in New Mexico in 1990. Please welcome Stephanie and her daughter, Melissa, to the show. And for every lowbrow show about shockingly dirty houses... Let me just tell you something. What's your mom's name? Darla. Hey, Darla, check it out. He's living in your house for free, okay? Now, part of what he could do for free is clean it downstairs! For every one of those, there were dozens that dove into important, newsworthy topics. 
We're talking today, this is really a show about what we can call rumors. The rumor that the CIA was involved in making sure that cocaine made it to the streets of South Central LA back in the early 80s and then helped to develop and turn it into crack. And a lot of this has been out there for years, but it wasn't until recently that the story broke again. And my next guest is a reporter, and he wrote a story called The Dark Alliance. Please welcome Mr. Gary Webb to the show. Sometimes I think that there is kind of a yin-yang style of talk show, daytime talk show host. You mm -hmm. probably know what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of like uh, Dr. Phil who sort of tells you, you know, you're, like you're being a jerk. Get it together. You've got to lose weight. you got to, you know, get a new boyfriend or you stop lying or whatever. And then there's a, you know, a softer, more forgiving figure um, who people cry in front of, like in, in, in nighttime news, Barbara Walters, and in daytime, Oprah Winfrey. Um, where do you see yourself in that? Because obviously you come out of the Marines, you're telling people not to drop out of school and just quit drugs, and, but you also have, as, as we've pointed out, a lot of dimensions to you. So, you know, where do you fall on that scale? I think, you know, from an empathetic standpoint, I think I, I we did some of the early, well, let's back up. First off, yeah. the first year that I was on the air, I was doing the same thing that everybody else was doing. Remember, mm -hmm. Oprah was doing, you know, can I get a, a breast size larger than the ones that we've had? So was Phil. Yeah. Um, but we also started talking about things like AIDS. Mm -hmm. We started think, talking about things like child abuse. Mm -hmm. We started talking about things like, you know, uh, child trafficking. You know, I remember we did a show. I did a show about why aren't there any latches to re for to release people out of a trunk if they're thrown in the trunk of a car? Hmm. And the car manufacturers put a latch in the trunk of the cars to allow people to be to pull a latch open if they were thrown in the trunk of a car. Wow. You know, I think that's part of why we stayed on. So I used to have a, a, a plaque or a little card that I had my producers put on their desk that said, we don't talk about what happens, we talk about why things happen and try to come up with solutions. We'll be right back after this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to This is Critical. What about this stuff that, that must have slipped through or maybe it interested you for a time, but that drew criticism? And I'm especially thinking of segments with the psychic. You know, this is really hard to tell you. Your father is not your father. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. <laughs> what, what do you mean, well, thank you? This lady just dropped a bomb. <laughs> a bomb on my head. But boom, what? My father, what? Yeah, but let's also back up and remember, I had, I had a psychic on my show um, because, you know, it's just like infomercials. Infomercials air because people respond. Mm. I had her mm. on the show because there were I was getting thousands of letters from people. I want to be on the show when Sylvia Brown's on. I want to be on the show mm. when Sylvia Brown's on. And when I put her on, she rated high. Um, yeah. And the only complaint about Sylvia Brown was the fact that she predicted something on my show that, you know, went wrong with one person. 
Mm-hmm. No one complained about them any other time. But yeah, I mean, they, there is enormous interest in things like psychics. There certainly was. There and was. also these paternity, on-air paternity tests. That you know, I just, never did. That people, people, we did, we did one. I did one. And I start, I'm the guy who started, we actually started the paternity test on the Montel Williams show. And the reason why? Because I had a young lady come on the show who was in dire need of a kidney. Hmm. and was looking for a family member who was a match. And that's what started all the entire idea of uh, paternity test. It wasn't, you know, who's the baby daddy? So then, you know, Maury took it to, you know, try to make it the mainstay of the reason why he existed. Was the Montel Williams show the first talk show to do a paternity test on air? It's tough to say, but Williams was at least early to the trend. I don't think people remember that your show was—we <laughs> now use canceled to mean something much more broad. But anyway, your show was canceled um, in, what, 2008? Am I getting this wrong? It aired through 2008. Yep. Got it. So there's a theory that the show was canceled. And this is worth bringing up because we're just now getting out of Afghanistan. That it, it, You went on Fox, on Fox and Friends, on Fox News— and you said they'd been spending too much airtime on celebrity deaths, in this case, the death of Heath Ledger, and not enough time talking about the war in Iraq. By 2008, the, you know, the steam and jingoism and, 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 and hawkishness had maybe lost its luster. Uh, the wars were looking more complicated than they thought. And soon after, a bunch of Fox-owned stations opted not to renew the show. And people say that doomed the show. Do you think that that's true? Uh, tell me your impression of that hypothesis, because it is widely held. I, I, if, if you went back and looked at that episode, I literally shoved a pole up the rear end of half these people that were on that Fox morning show. Because, you know, first off, they asked me to come on to talk about Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then I get there and I said to them, look, you know, I don't feel comfortable talking about the Heath Ledger. You know what I mean? That's as a young man and the family's lost a loved one. I don't feel comfortable talking about that. I don't want to. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the soldiers and sailors that we're losing every single day. Mm-hmm. Yep. I sat down on that stage and then they tried to, to, to you know, s- slap me with this as the first question. And I was like, stop. How many soldiers did we lose yesterday? Why yeah. aren't you talking about that? I mean, you know, yeah. this is what's important right now in this country. And I got up and I, I was I was very angry because um, and I pulled the microphone off and I left. I, I walked off the show because um, I thought it was really disrespectful, A, um, to those who were fighting for our freedom mm-hmm. to not get the airtime that they had promised that they were going to give me with them. Mm-hmm. And I was mad. Uh, and. You know, it did anger some of the, the, the Fox O&Os across the country, and I really could care less. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think it was it was a wake-up call. And, and now, you know, they act like they are the big purveyors of, you know, we want to talk Serious about the news. war and uh, the fact that the president did such a bad job in Afghanistan. I, 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 let's talk about Afghanistan for a second. Yeah. That war went on for 20 years. A month ago, we heard everybody crying and complaining about the way it came to an end, which was going to come to that end no matter what, who mm-hmm. was president. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear about them complaining about the deaths of people every single day in that country five years ago, 10 years ago. But now all of a sudden, because you have an opportunity to run your mouth against this current president, 
and make it politicize it that way, then let's talk about, oh, this show, we're so upset that we're leaving these Afghanis by themselves. Shut up, you know what up. I have to ask you about um, about MS, uh, sure. multiple sclerosis. When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed officially in the year 2000, but I probably should have been diagnosed in 1980, which is the way it is mm. for so many people. There mm-hmm. are people, there is, you know, there, unfortunately, that's an illness that, you know, they can go 10, 15 years with doctors saying it's all in your head. You know, um, mm-hmm. and the truth of the matter is it was an existing illness. And so, yeah, I got diagnosed officially in the year 2000. So were you getting, um, since 1980, through all you just described, you were experiencing periodic symptoms or oh, a sense that I, something wasn't wasn't right? Let's go back again. Let's go back in time. Back in 1980, when I had my first bout, probably at the Naval Academy, Mm-hmm. You know, if you looked at doctors, you know, physician desk references, they considered MS a disease of of Caucasian women of northern European descent. Hmm. That was it. If you didn't fit that mold, you didn't have MS. And so, you know, we went 20, I went 20 years being misdiagnosed in the military, going in to see a doctor and coming out of it saying that, you know, that it was just something anomalous. If you stop putting, you know, I used to also be a very heavy weightlifter. And mm-hmm. doctors would say, if you stop putting all that weight on your back, you'd probably find that some of your pains would go away. Was it numbness? I mean, I, I have some friends with the diagnosis, and it manifests in so many different ways. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about specifics. Almost every person who suffers from MS suffers from it a little differently. Um, mm. Though we found that, you know, in a lot of cases, um, start with symptoms that are similar to mine, that start in optic areas, you know, some optic acuity issues. I had optic mm-hmm. neuropathy, optic pruritus, um, almost went blind in my left eye, and then I had numbness, patches of numbness on my body, some mm-hmm. areas of weakness on my body that no one could explain. And mm-hmm. they, um, and so, you know, when you really look at the hardcore diagnosis, it, it is literally fulfilled by, you know, having periods of neurological anomalies that can't be explained. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, finally, I went to see a doctor in 2000 who said, you know, I got to tell you, I think we ought to do an MRI on you. And I went in and had my MRI done and uh, realized that I had some MS, multiple sclerosis, in Latin is multiple scars. Ah. So I had multiple scars in my brain, and that's how we ended up getting the final diagnosis. And then what do you do? Because that's the other issue, I think, for people with MS, is that what do you do with the diagnosis? Because, they, I mean, I realize management comes into it. It's always incredible, an incredible relief to have a name that describes the symptoms. But what, are, what do you do on a day-to-day um, basis? And then what brought you to cannabis? Well, you know, I mean, let, let's back up again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, back up when, when I was, should have been diagnosed in 80, there weren't, there was really nothing that they could do with people. Then when mm-hmm. I finally got diagnosed, you know, there were only three medications that were available mm-hmm. in 2000. Now there are lots of medications that are out there, but none of those medications are cures. They are just ways to put the symptoms and hold some of the exacerbations in abeyance. Mm-hmm. You know, cannabis. I went down the path of cannabis because, you know, when I was initially diagnosed, my the bout episode that I went through, I was left with severe neuropathic pain and mm-hmm. neuropathy that was mm-hmm. unbearable that uh, the initial treatment protocols that the doctors came up with for me was an opioid regimen that literally almost made me an opioid addict. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think I had some mild addiction because I was literally doctor shopping, trying to get opioids from everybody I could get them from. And I had, had a really good doctor. I had a really good doctor who recognized that I was doing that and said to me, dude, I'm done. I'm not writing you any mm-hmm. more prescriptions for opioids. And I've reached out to several of the doctors that you've reached out to and told them that they need to slow down on you because mm-hmm. you're taking too many. And I was. And he said to me that, you know, this is back in 2001. He said, look, you know, I've heard, I will never say I said this to you, uh, but I've heard that there are some patients like you that have that kind of neuropathic pain who've gotten relief out of cannabis, out of different, mm-hmm. he didn't say cannabis, out of marijuana and different mm-hmm. types of marijuana. And he said, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but you're a smart guy, do the research and you'll probably mm-hmm. figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. And I found out back long before it was Vogue, long before people were talking about, you know, CBD, I recognized right. that there was something in this in this plant called cannabinoids that literally various types of those cannabinoids actually do work for neuropathic pain, do work mm-hmm. for various things. It must have been an uphill battle in the beginning, but you probably don't, you know, you don't get um, many detractors on this anymore uh, since medical marijuana has been legalized and, and, and cannabis is now more widely available. 37 states in the District of Columbia have some sort of legal marijuana program going on in it now. But if you go back to 2000, that was only about four states. No, exactly. And the only people, you know, is High Times magazine um, were the people kind of advocating for it. And they didn't seem exactly like they were managing pain, although, you know, maybe I missed something there. I could talk to you all day, but, (laughs) you know, Montel, you are one of a kind um, and it is so great to have you on this show. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And I'm so glad to be here. Please make sure everybody knows that they can, you can catch a little taste of Montel if you want. I I do two podcasts right now. One's called Let's Be Blunt with Montel. I also do another one that's called, um, you know, Free Thinking. Both of which you can get wherever you listen to This is Critical. Coming up next week, a conversation with former Congresswoman Katie Hill. I felt like a hypocrite because, you know, I had run during this, the height of the Me Too stuff that was going on and the the height of when it was really becoming such an issue, right? Like it was becoming so prevalent in people's minds. And I decided at that point that the best thing for me to do would be to step down. That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter and at This Critical Pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer, with help from consulting producer Tamika Weatherspoon. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay critical. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. 
but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Trick responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.